Norman Centuries by Lars Brownworth Episode 15, William the Good Welcome back. The last time we talked about the reign of William the Bad, the somewhat lazy but capable king who had the impossible task of following the brilliant Roger II. As bad as he might have been, however, William I had at least provided the kingdom with an heir. The great vitality of the Normans in southern Italy may have been failing. William's father and grandfather had produced at least 32 children between them, while William managed only four. But at least the succession wasn't in doubt. The young William II, just shy of his 13th birthday, was crowned in a sumptuous ceremony, and, theoretically at least, accepted the burden of caring for nearly two million subjects. He was, by all accounts, a striking youth, tall and dark-eyed, already showing the fair hair and height of his Norse heritage. He seemed a mixture of dynamism and gravity far beyond his years. At the first glimpse of him in the streets of Palermo, according to several eyewitnesses, his subjects fell genuinely in love. Until he came of age, however, they would be denied the pleasure of being governed by him. In the meantime, a regency council was set up, headed by his mother Margaret and a trio of the leading notables of the kingdom. It would have been difficult to pick a more unsuitable group of people to run a government. The three advisors, a eunuch named Peter, a notary named Matthew, and the archbishop Richard Palmer, spent most of their time trying to assassinate each other. Margaret quickly realized that she had to get rid of them before they got rid of her, so she promoted the least threatening one, Peter, above the other two, momentarily putting one of the most wealthy and influential Christian kingdoms in the hands of a Muslim eunuch. Peter was an intriguer, a civil servant who knew the intricacies of the bureaucracy and who was most comfortable behind the scenes. Pushed to the center, he quickly lost control. Within a few months, Sicily was in chaos, and Peter, fearing assassination, fled to North Africa. To restore the situation, Margaret invited her cousin, Stephen Duperche from France, who, if not wise, was at least strong. The choice was controversial. For the nobility, it was bad enough that the plum jobs were being awarded to foreigners, but the salary of the office of chancellor, vacant since Peter had fled, had been divided among them. Stephen's appointment, therefore, was both a loss of prestige and income. Just as tensions reached a boiling pitch, however, news came of a fresh disaster that made everything else irrelevant. The terrible German Emperor Barbarossa had crossed the Alps and descended on Italy. The very survival of the kingdom was in doubt. Sicily had been a thorn in the German side since its founding. Norman kings had offered aid and protection to the Pope and the cities of northern Italy, which had time and again defied the emperor. Army after army had been sent to pacify Italy, only to have it flare up again in revolt the moment they left, aided by Sicilian gold and papal blessing. The solution, in Frederick Barbarossa's eyes, was twofold. Install a tame pontiff in Rome and smash Sicily. So, in the summer of 1167, he crossed the Alps. At first, the cities of northern Italy made their usual show of defiance before capitulating, but this time, Barbarossa had no mercy. Towns that resisted were wiped from the map, their populations killed or sold into slavery. The road to Rome was clogged with refugees, all hoping that the magic of its name would somehow ward off the invaders. Its fate, however, was sealed. On July 29th, the imperial forces battered their way in, and no attempt was made by Frederick to control them. Statues were pulled down, marble slabs were hacked from their fittings, and tombs were smashed open to get at the jewels inside. 
Not even St. Peter's was spared. Bands of soldiers managed to force their way past the doors and slaughtered the horrified clerics as they vainly clung to the high altar. The very next day, before the stench of blood and corpses was cleared, Frederick had his tame pope crowned, grimly promising that all who resisted him would soon experience the same fate. In Palermo, his words reduced the city to a panic. The defense was virtually abandoned as nobles began to flee with what treasure they could carry. The island appeared doomed. It was in chaos, governed by an unpopular woman and an inexperienced foreigner. There wasn't even a real army assembled to oppose the Germans. Only an act of God could save the Normans now. Fortunately for Sicily, God obliged. Two days after he crowned his pope, the plague struck Frederick's army decimating it. The swampy climate of Rome and the unseasonable heat only made it worse. But when Barbarossa ordered an evacuation of the city, the plague followed him. By the time he reached the Alps, his great army was ruined. The emperor was no longer feared, but actively mocked. Northern Italy didn't even bother to wait until he was gone to formally declare its independence. And, as if that weren't enough, they blocked all the passes through the mountains. Only by dressing as a servant did the humiliated emperor manage to sneak past into Germany. In Sicily, news of the miraculous delivery led to a surge in popularity for Margaret and Stephen du Perche. The French escort that he had brought continued to be resented by the population, but Stephen himself was proving to be a competent administrator. His reforms, however, mostly at the expense of the nobility, were intensely hated by the latter and led to numerous assassination plots. Margaret supported him completely. In fact, their relationship seems to have been more than platonic, and it became clear that none of the nobility would ever share power while he was present. For two years, things continued more or less smoothly, with Stephen nimbly evading assassination and managing the growing resentment of the population. But when Margaret appointed him Archbishop of Palermo, they had had enough. A mob stormed the palace, forcing Stephen and his French companions to flee to the cathedral and barricade themselves inside. Bloodshed was avoided only when Stephen agreed to leave Sicily and never return. He and his companions were allowed to walk down to the harbor and board a ship destined for the Holy Land. The fall of her favorite finished Margaret. Though William still had three years before he reached his majority, that Spanish woman, as she was called, had no energy to continue struggling. She remained the regent, but real power devolved to her son's tutor, an ambitious and unscrupulous Englishman by the name of Walter of the Mill. Raised to the rank of archbishop, Walter would have a virtual monopoly of power over domestic affairs for the next decade. In 1171, William turned 18 and officially took over control of Sicily. Though he had lived his life in seclusion in the palace, he already had grandiose ambitions. Sicily had once been the leading power in the Mediterranean. William intended to return it to that state. And to his subjects, at least, he seemed uniquely suited to the task. Tall and good-looking, with a round face, dark eyes, and closely cropped beard, he was studious, fluent in Greek, Latin, Arabic, French, and Italian, and deeply religious. He was also remarkably fortunate. The upheaval of Stephen's fall turned out to be the last serious disturbance of his reign. Sicily entered a remarkable period of domestic peace and prosperity. The kingdom's trade boomed. The secret of silk production was smuggled out of Constantinople, adding to the already diverse industries of iron, salt, and sulfur. Coral was harvested from the coastal waters. The Sicilian tunny fish was imported across the Mediterranean, 
and Sicilian farms produced wheat, oranges, lemons, melons, and almonds that were in demand across Europe and North Africa. Even Sicily's forests played their part. Sicilian timber was well known for its high quality. One pope even used it exclusively to repair the Lateran's roof. The turmoil of William the Bad's reign may have interfered with these industries, but it hadn't affected Sicily's reputation for luxury or power. When the young William II attained his majority, foreign offers of marriage rolled in. The first was from the Byzantine emperor Manuel Comnenus, offering his 15-year-old daughter Maria. This was especially intriguing because Manuel didn't have a son, meaning that William's grandchild would stand to inherit both Sicily and Byzantium. Not to be outdone, Frederick Barbarossa offered his daughter as well, and Henry II of England chimed in with the offer of his third daughter, Joan, sister of Richard the Lionhearted. With the Englishman Walter of the Mill advising him, William gravitated toward Joan. It was only natural, after all, that the two Norman kingdoms at opposite ends of Europe should be officially united. There were already cultural and family ties. Each kingdom was a natural destination for the exiles of the other, and most of the nobility in Palermo had relatives in London. But just when William was on the point of accepting, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Becket, was murdered by four of Henry's knights, and in the resulting firestorm, the matter was tactfully dropped. The Emperor Manuel again offered his daughter, and this time it was accepted. On the day when the princess was due to arrive, however, there was no Byzantine ship on the horizon. Manuel had evidently decided that the Western Empire would be a more suitable match, and didn't bother to inform Sicily of the change of plan. William processed down to the harbor in state, and after a day of waiting, was forced to return to the palace thoroughly and quite publicly humiliated. He wouldn't forget the insult. For several years the marriage issue was allowed to lie fallow, before Walter of the Mill again began to suggest that William should look toward England. He got surprising help in this direction from the Pope, who was terrified that William would marry into Barbarossa's family, and thereby unite the two great powers to the north and south of Rome. Enough time had passed for most of the furor over Becket's murder to die down, and inquiries were quietly made. Henry and his wife Eleanor of Aquitaine accepted, and in 1177, the 23-year-old William and the 12-year-old Joan were married in Palermo. Politically, the match marked the high point of William's reign. He was at the peak of his youth, beginning to even break free from the control of Walter of the Mill. Three years before, he had started building a magnificent cathedral at Montreal, ostensibly to the glory of his grandfather Roger II, but in reality to weaken Walter's power. When it was finished, he appointed an archbishop, creating at once a rival of equal authority to his powerful advisor. Walter protested furiously, but there was little he could do. It was an extraordinary time. William was popular, fabulously wealthy, and young, and the international situation seemed to adjust itself for his benefit. In Italy, the aging Frederick Barbarossa at last abandoned any hopes of outright conquest and decided to try diplomacy instead. He offered Sicily a permanent truce. It was too late for William to marry into the German royal family, but Frederick had another offer. His son and heir Henry was not yet married, if William could find a suitable bride, the two kingdoms would be united in peace. William eagerly agreed. His grandfather Roger II had a posthumous daughter named Constance, who was a year younger than William himself. Since he didn't yet have any children, his aunt Constance stood to inherit the Sicilian throne. 
And to drive this point home, he had all the nobles of the realm swear to accept her as the heir if he died without issue. He then escorted her to the harbor and sent her off to the crown prince of the German Empire. Even some of William's usually adoring public recognized the sheer lunacy of what he had just done. Though there seemed to be plenty of time for heirs, he was just 30 and his wife was 18, it was a terrible risk to give Sicily's great enemy a legitimate claim to the throne. If William or his wife were to die prematurely, and the medieval world was nothing if not uncertain, Sicily would fall into the lap of the ruler who had actively tried to destroy it for the last quarter of a century. But whatever the risks, it was worth it to William because it freed him up to concentrate on his dream of foreign conquest. He had grown up on stories of his grandfather's triumphs and had been appalled by his father's abandonment of Africa. Now he intended to revive Sicily's overseas empire. His first probing attack was a disaster. North Africa was united under the powerful Almohads, and they easily repulsed the Norman invasion. Next, he sent 30,000 troops to invade Alexandria, hoping to curb the power of the new Muslim strongman Saladin, who was threatening Jerusalem. The Normans had barely disembarked when Saladin's army showed up, easily routing the disorganized Sicilians. Most reached the ships in safety, but they had to retreat with nothing accomplished. William, however, was nothing if not determined, and the situation in the eastern Mediterranean was suddenly very encouraging in the most surprising of places. Constantinople. 1180 saw a great changing of the guard. Manuel Comnenus died after 36 years on the throne, leaving an 11-year-old named Alexius and a deeply unpopular regent. For two years the government held on, but in 1182 Manuel's cousin Andronicus raised a revolt. He was a curious figure, possessing all of the brilliance of his family with none of its restraint. In 1182, he was already in his 60s, but looked two decades younger, and his exploits, both on the battlefield and in the bedroom, were legendary. By the time he marched on Constantinople, he had already seduced three cousins, been banished twice, and cut a swath through the mores of Byzantine society. And yet, wherever he went in 1182, he was greeted with open arms. Armies sent against him defected, and when he arrived at the walls of Constantinople, he was escorted through the Golden Gate by ecstatic crowds. The cheering didn't last long. Within a month, he had murdered the entire royal family. The young Alexius was made to sign his own mother's death warrant before being strangled himself. Andronicus then married the 12-year-old widow and started to systematically eliminate anyone who showed sympathy for the previous regime. In Sicily, William saw a revenge for the public humiliation he had suffered at Constantinople's hands. Affairs at home were carefully put in order. A treaty with North Africa ensured that there would be no threat from that quarter, and the German Empire had already been neutralized by the marriage of Constance. Somewhere from among Sicily's Greek population, a young man was found who was put forward as the murdered Alexius II, and William piously announced that he would restore the youth to his rightful throne. A massive force, the largest the kingdom had ever mustered, was prepared and in the spring of 1185, 250 ships carrying 80,000 men set sail from Palermo. They reached the port city of Durazzo on the Albanian coast in June, and 13 days later it was in their hands. They now had access to the Via Ignatia, the old Roman road that ran across the Balkans to the city of Thessalonica, 
and then to Constantinople itself. Thanks to an effective news blockade before they set out, the Norman army had managed to take Durazzo completely by surprise, but Thessalonica promised to be a much more formidable obstacle. It was the second largest city of the Byzantine Empire, and its military governor had over a month's warning to prepare his defenses. Fortunately for the Normans, however, he failed to make even rudimentary plans beyond shutting the doors. Within a few days, his archers had run out of arrows, and his catapults had run out of stones. Even worse, he hadn't bothered to check the water supply, and several of the half-filled cisterns were found to be leaking badly. Instead of trying to address the situation, he decided to profit from it, rationing off his personal supply for enormous sums. Morale plummeted steadily, and it wasn't long before a desperate defender opened the gate. The destruction was terrible. The Normans entered in the early morning, and by noon, more than 5,000 citizens were dead. By the end of the first day, the generals had managed to reassert control of the situation, but Thessalonica was in ruins. The Norman army, in any case, had to keep moving. Aside from the obvious logistical problems, food and water were by now scarce, and even at the best of times, no city was capable of handling an influx of 80,000 new people. The Sicilians left a small garrison behind, and quickly resumed their march toward Constantinople. With any luck, they would be eating Christmas dinner in the Imperial Palace. The Byzantines didn't seem capable of stopping them. By now, Andronicus was showing signs of mental instability, and his reign was descending into a bloodbath. As one chronicler put it, he considered a day without killing someone as a day wasted. One moment he would show remorse, seemingly tormented by the blood on his hands and the next he would be rising to a new extreme of killing. Terrified of assassination, he barricaded himself inside the palace, spending his time rooting out real or imagined conspiracies. When news of the Norman army reached him, he dispatched a force to intercept it, but since he was incapable of trusting anyone, he split it into five parts, each commanded by a minor general of equal rank. They immediately started quarreling about the best course of action, some wandering in the general direction of the Sicilians, others taking defensive positions along the way, and none of them even remotely threatening. When the citizens of Constantinople woke a few weeks later to see the Norman fleet drawn up in the Imperial Harbor, they had had enough. A mob stormed the palace, and Andronicus the Terrible met a grisly end. With his fall, the Byzantine luck abruptly changed. The new emperor consolidated the splintered imperial army under its most gifted general, Alexius Branus, and he immediately marched 200 miles to confront the Normans. William's overconfident army had dropped its guard, and Branus successfully ambushed it as the Sicilians were attempting to cross a river. The casualties were relatively light, but the effect on morale was devastating. The Normans had expected an easy victory, but now it was clear that the approach to Constantinople to say nothing of the eventual siege that would be needed, was going to be long and difficult. Branus cleverly waited a few months for morale to dip further, before offering to discuss terms. When the Sicilians hesitated, Branus suddenly attacked. The Normans were taken completely off guard, and since their fleet was in Constantinople, there was nowhere to run. Most of the army was destroyed. Those that survived tried to take refuge in Thessalonica, but were gleefully attacked by the citizens as payback for the sacking of the city. Only a few thousand of the Grand Army managed to hike over the mountain passes in winter and return to Italy. The debacle was a serious blow to William's prestige, 
but the silver lining was that his navy was still undefeated. They had easily conquered several islands and had brushed aside the Byzantine fleet. The campaign had, in fact, revealed an admiral of genius named Margaritus, and in 1187, the entire Christian world had need of his services. In that year, the army of the Crusader Kingdom of Jerusalem had been annihilated by Saladin, and as a consequence, Jerusalem itself fell to the triumphant Muslims. The news sent shockwaves through Christendom. Pope Urban III was supposedly so traumatized upon hearing it that he died, and his successor immediately called a new crusade. William was the first monarch to respond. Dressing in a rough shirt of camel hair and smearing ashes over his head, he ordered four days of mourning and pledged his immediate support. As a sign of his intentions, Admiral Margaritus was dispatched to Palestine with orders to harass the Saracens to the best of his ability. In the meantime, William fired off letters to the kings of England and France, as well as the German emperor, managing to convince all of them to lead armies in person to recapture Jerusalem. This was more than simple Christian piety, however. If the Crusaders could be diverted through Sicily, instead of taking the usual land route, it would be a huge financial windfall for his merchants. Each letter contained not only an appeal to religious duty, but also a nice bit of propaganda, stressing the pleasant Sicilian climate and highlighting the numerous advantages of a sea route to Palestine. William intended to be the leader of the crusade, and the performance of his admiral greatly helped his case. With a tiny fleet of only 60 ships, he was single-handedly keeping the main crusader sea lanes open, putting pressure on the Levantine coast, and thwarting every Saracen attempt to capture a Latin port. By the summer of 1188, he was being called the New Neptune, and was justly feared throughout the eastern Mediterranean. News of his approach off the coast of Tripoli forced Saladin to raise the siege of the nearby crusader fortress Crac de Chevalier, and his appearance in Tyre the next year caused an immediate Saracen retreat. The only thing preventing him from capturing new territory was a lack of knights. He had less than 200 with him. But surely the arrival of the main crusading armies would change that. But then, in mid-November, Margaritus was abruptly recalled to Sicily. The 36-year-old William II, last of the Houtville kings, was dead. The cause is unknown. It is only reported to have been swift and nonviolent. His reign was remembered as a golden age of internal peace and prosperity, and he was mourned more than any king in Sicily before or after. Several centuries later, Dante even put him in paradise as the ideal king. But this reputation is thoroughly undeserved. William II was less good than he was fortunate. His reign happened to be bookmarked by periods of severe instability. There were incessant revolts during his father's reign, and civil war after his death. If there was peace and prosperity in between, it was not due to any wise stewardship on his part. He was, in fact, remarkably irresponsible. Not only did he constantly commit Sicily's resources to ill-advised and uniformly disastrous foreign wars, but he signed away his kingdom's future to its greatest enemy for the short-term gain of a temporary peace. His predecessors, even William the Bad, had defended Sicily against the Holy Roman Empire with everything they had, and he gave it away of his own free will. For that alone, he should be called William the Worse. The Germans would quickly come to claim what was now theirs, 
but the kingdom of Sicily still had a moment of life left in it. Join me next time as I look at the reign of Tancred of Lys, the last heroic but doomed Norman king of Sicily. <laughs>